listening to the Evolution 101 Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome again to Evolution 101. My name is Zachary Moore, and you can email me directly at zach at drzach.net. You can also send feedback through the website at drzach.net, which also contains some links and other resources, including links to the archive page at freethoughtmedia.com, as well as transcripts of these episodes. All right, well, let's start things off with some listener email. From Kyle, what is the evolutionary explanation for humor? Humans and other animals find things funny, sometimes debilitating so, but I have trouble seeing why and to what end. Well, Kyle, humor is a tricky thing to even define colloquially, let alone technically. But one such definition that I've heard that I think is appropriate in both contexts is that humor equals tragedy plus time, or tragedy averted. Take, for example, the classic gag of a person slipping on a banana peel. The person comes walking along, slips, and falls on their behind. The tragedy would be that if if in falling, that person broke his neck and died. But, of course, that's never part of the gag. The person suffers no more than a bruised ego, and so we regard it as funny. Or you could think of it less of a gag setting and somewhat more personal. Well, let's say you're walking down the street with some friends, and you slip on something and fall to the ground. Immediately, you'd probably expect your friends to show concern for your well-being. They are anticipating some tragedy. But you get up again, dust yourself off, and appear to be fine, at which point they start to laugh at that same specific thing that threatened you just a few seconds before, and even point out your facial expression as the thing most hilarious. So how does this make sense in evolutionary theory? Well, there actually has been a good bit of research on the origins of laughter, and there are some reasonable hypotheses out there. There is, in fact, a highly detailed but worthwhile review paper published in the December 2005 Quarterly Review of Biology, authored by Matthew Gervais and David Sloan Wilson from Binghamton University. They define classical laughter as a response to a sudden unexpected change in events that is perceived to be at once not serious and in a social context. The actual physical act of laughing is homologous to the play panting seen in other primates and thus would be considered as a pre-adaptation for the development of laughter in humans. Laughter would have become a ritualized way to spread positive emotional states within a social group of early hominids as far back as four million years ago. Thus, laughter evolved as a kind of social glue in our ancestors to promote social interactions during those times in which they were not being threatened by predators, famine, or other environmental stressors. And, in fact, this is still how laughter is used today. It's still a powerful social tool and can even be taken advantage of to lift our emotional states during times which are actually tragic. From Elias, my main problem is with how information can come together to actually create life forms. How is it that DNA came to be? I know evolution doesn't deal with the origins of life, but sooner or later something has to. It all seems way too complicated to have happened by chance. 
Well, first of all, there are two words here that should signal alarm bells for those of you who have been listening to this podcast from the beginning. The first is information. I'll refer you to the excellent discussion of information theory in the context of evolution, which was given by my good friend Ryan just a couple podcasts ago. Secondly, the word chance. I'll refer you back to the random or non-random podcast for that. Briefly, information doesn't create life forms, and life doesn't happen by chance. And you're right, the origins of life, or abiogenesis, are not part of evolutionary theory. However, there are several hypotheses of abiogenesis, and the one which I find most plausible is the one put forth by Richard Dawkins in his book, The Selfish Gene. Basically, it hinges on the concept of replication of all the prebiotic organic molecules which could have existed prior to the origin of life, only a few could have been able to actually replicate themselves. But all that is needed is for one species of molecule to be able to replicate, and then by very definition it will outcompete everything else. DNA was likely a later adaptation of RNA, or something similar to RNA, since it has a more stable replication template. Uh, but RNA is still used as the sole replication medium for many kinds of viruses even today. From Jack, are advantages in modern science slowing human evolution by enabling people who would normally be unable to reproduce to pass on their genes? And if so, are humans going to keep evolving? Well, the real question is, do humans need to keep evolving? If we have developed the, the capability to control our environment to the point where people who otherwise would be unable to live and reproduce are doing so, well, then there's very little that evolution actually needs to do. Think about this for a moment. The only goal of your genes is to replicate themselves. If modern science allows for more genes to replicate, then from the perspective of, ev of evolution, well, that's just fine and dandy. I think the unstated part of your question is, are we damaging ourselves, or are we precluding ourselves from becoming something better by enabling more people to pass on their genes? Well, I think the first part of that is a serious consideration, but bear in mind that science has to be able to ameliorate that damage, or else we wouldn't be having so many more people survive. From a moral standpoint, it's certainly possible that certain recessive genes are being increased in frequency which cause painful genetic diseases, but it remains the individual moral choice of the individuals who have those recessive genes to decide to procreate. Many people, due to genetic counseling, choose not to pass on their recessive genes in the hope that they will prevent the suffering of their children. But that's not a decision that science can force on them. It can only inform their decisions. The second part of that question, are we preventing ourselves from becoming something better? I honestly think this is just an X-Men fantasy. We, we can't predict what the next evolutionary step will be in human development because we can't be sure what environmental changes are going to be taking place. Remember, evolution is driven by the adaptation to the environment. It's quite possible that the next evolutionary step would be to lose traits. This happens in many species. 
uh, evolution is not necessarily a teleological process. There's no evolutionary ladder. And, you know, there may be no next step at all. It could be extinction for us. Steve writes to ask, I'm wondering why so much of the furor over evolution is dedicated to animals and mostly humans. Is there ever a controversy over plant life? And I'm wondering how complete the fossil record is for plants. Can we see more transitional species in plant fossils? Also, do you have a suggested reading list? Maybe some non-technical books. Well, humans are egotistical. We like to think of ourselves most of all, and we like to think of those animals which are more similar to us next, on and on, in due order. Plants tend to be taken for granted most of the time, or at least they don't get as much time in the spotlight. But they have been and are being studied. Paleobotany is the field of research which studies prehistoric plant life. There are plenty of plant fossils showing the progression of plant evolution onto land, and the molecular evidence shows that the earliest of these would have been liverworts, which are actually very similar to mosses in many ways, and in fact used to be classified with mosses. After these, we find plants with a true vascular structure, of which the earliest are ferns, Uh, And finally, we find the seed-bearing plants, with the flowering plants being the most recently evolved of this group. As far as a suggested reading list, uh, I think P.Z. Myers has come up with an excellent list, which you can find at his blog, Pharyngula. And uh, I'll link to that on the blog. Uh, But I'll highlight some of my favorites here. Finding Darwin's God by Ken Miller is a great non-technical book, in general, and is especially good for those who have, for whatever reason, a theological predisposition against evolution. Uh, Matt Ridley's book, Genome, is also a pretty good read, as is anything by Richard Dawkins, particularly his most recent, The Ancestor's Tale. If you're feeling particularly intrepid, well, I can't help but recommend reading Charles Darwin himself. Very few people do, actually, but I think that it adds a really good perspective to read the man's own words. Tom writes in about my argument for the molecular evidence for evolution. He says, Wouldn't a genetic designer of any kind tend to use the same proteins or DNA sequences over and over if he or she were to modify an organism or build one from scratch? I think your argument left a hole open for the intelligent design crowd to walk into. Repetitive protein functionality between species could be viewed as the act of a logical and efficient designer, be it human, god, or extraterrestrial, one who repeatedly uses genetic sequences that are known to work well. This is a tricky argument because you're presuming to know what intentions such a designer would have had when designing organisms. The problem is that, given the existence of such a designer, we can determine empirically what options would have been available. If you're familiar with my series on molecular evidence from evolution, you already know that all the options would have been available, basically. So there's no compelling reason why conserved genes would have shown similar sequences between different species. It would have been entirely possible for each species to have a completely different sequence. But the opposite is true also. As I've shown before, the yeast cytochrome C gene can be replaced by the human cytochrome C gene, even though the sequences are very, very different. So, 
If a designer really wanted to be logical and efficient, it would have made all species with genes that are coded by the same sequences, since clearly they're interchangeable. What is actually the case, however, is that species which share physiological homology also share molecular homology, and at the same basic amount. That is, a human shares more physiological homology with a mouse than with yeast, and it also shares more molecular homology with a mouse, even though it's been shown that there's no molecular need for this to be. So the conclusion has to be that if there is a designer, it has designed the genes of all organisms to indicate that they have really not been designed at all. Jace asks, I'm curious about how blood types came to be. I keep hearing about a blood type diet, and I was wondering if there's any real evolutionary support that people with different blood types should have diets that include the foods that were available in the areas that each blood type developed. Is it important enough to be considered advantageous to consume these foods for health benefits? Well, although the data is not completely clear, recent research seems seems to suggest that blood types arose as part of the immune system. Blood type is conferred by molecules that bind to the outside of your erythrocytes, or red blood cells. These molecules are essentially made up of sugar chains that are attached to the the outer membrane of the red blood cell and are immunologically reactive. Because of this, they are considered to be antigenic, which means that they can bind to specific antibodies which will recognize their particular three-dimensional structure. The only chance they'll have to come in contact with these antibodies is if they're placed into a person's body who does not have the specific blood type molecules already. For example, a person with A-type molecules on their red blood cells will have antibodies against B-type, but not A. And a person with B-type molecules will have antibodies against A-type, but not B. So, if a person with B-type blood receives A-type blood as a donation, the anti-A antibodies will bind to the A-type blood and do what antibodies are supposed to do and essentially blow them up. And this is why it's important to receive only blood that is your type or compatible with your type. For example, unless you're type AB, which means that you have neither A nor B antibodies and you can receive anybody's blood. And the opposite of this would be type O, which means that since you have neither A nor B molecules on your red blood cells, you have antibodies against each, so you can only receive type O. Well, the reason why these specific molecules seem to have arisen through evolution is suggested in the fact that people who have either A or B molecules on their blood cells seem to be better at fighting off bacterial infections, while those who have neither seem to be better at fighting off viral infections. Because populations are burdened with bacterial and viral infections at different times, neither genotype has become the most popular, and we still have a pretty good mix of these different blood types in the population today, although type A is pretty popular in most populations, except among Bengalis, who favor type B. What doesn't seem to have any weight is the notion that someone's blood type determines what kind of diet one should eat. This is a fallacious way of thinking about genetics. There are many factors which influence how one is able to metabolize certain foods, and there is no reason to think that all of the genetic factors would associate with a gene that assigns blood type. 
In addition to diet, according to this blood type diet book, people with different blood types are also supposed to have specific personality traits. Well, this just adds more complexity to the whole mess. Now we're supposed to believe that the many genetic and environmental factors that lead to the development of our personalities are determined simply by the single gene that determines our blood type. This sounds like so much hogwash to me. This is classic pseudoscience, actually. It plays on people's general knowledge of blood type as a scientific reality and then adds on fantastical claims that run counter to what we know about genetics, all while playing on people's desire to have an easy solution to the problem of being too fat. My advice, for what it's worth, eat well-balanced meals, get plenty of exercise, get advice from your physician, and try not to pay attention to the media-driven beauty ideals and fad diet books. Alright, that's enough for the soapbox. Lenny wrote in and actually sent a picture of uh, something which I'll share on the blog. He says, My brother's local public school started to post these stickers on textbooks. What is the best organization to contact with this and that would want to overturn it? And this sticker says, A message from the Alabama State Board of Education. The word theory has many meanings. Theories are defined as systematically organized knowledge, abstract reasoning, a speculative idea or plan, or a systematic statement of principles. Scientific theories are based on both observations of the natural world and assumptions about the natural world. They are always subject to change in view of new and confirmed observations. Many scientific theories have been developed over time. The value of scientific work is not only the development of theories, but also what is learned from the development process. The Alabama course of study, Science, includes many theories and studies of scientists' work. The work of Copernicus, Newton, and Einstein, to name a few, has provided a basis of our knowledge of the world today. The theory of evolution by natural selection is a controversial theory that is included in this textbook. It is controversial because it states that natural selection provides the basis for the modern scientific explanation for the diversity of living things. Since natural selection has been observed to play a role in influencing small changes in a population, it is assumed that it produces large changes, even though this has not been directly observed. Because of its importance and implications, students should understand the nature of evolutionary theories. They should learn to make distinctions between the multiple meanings of evolution, to distinguish between observations and assumptions used to draw conclusions, and to wrestle with the unanswered questions and unresolved problems still faced by evolutionary theory. There are many unanswered questions about the origin of life. With the explosion of new scientific knowledge in biochemical and molecular biology and exciting new fossil discoveries, Alabama students may be among those who use their understanding and skills to contribute to knowledge and to answer many unanswered questions. Instructional material associated with controversy should be approached with an open mind, studied carefully, and critically considered. I really don't need to dissect this any further. I've already spoken about uh, evolution as a theory and in the second podcast, actually. Um... The same thing actually happened in Georgia, as you probably know, and a federal district judge ruled that unconstitutional last year. That case was brought by the ACLU, 
uh, if you want to contact them about this, they'd probably be the best bet, although I would imagine that they're already either aware of it or their efforts are already underway. But certainly give them a call and write me back to know what progress is made. Bonnie writes to say, I love debating science controversies with my colleagues, but one particularly religious one didn't deny evolution, although he did have a few reservations about it. His argument referred to why scientists can't put survival pressures on organisms in the lab to make them evolve. I know that this happens with quickly reproducing organisms like bacteria, but has anyone tried it with higher organisms, such as making a frog fly? I'd imagine getting the funding for this kind of thing would be difficult and take a long time. Is it possible? Well, scientists do put survival pressures on organisms in the lab to make them evolve all the time, such as bacteria. And in fact, there are frogs that fly already, or glide, actually. Many species of Asian tree frogs can glide from branch to branch using the extended webbing between their toes to cushion their fall, just like flying squirrels or lizards or snakes do. But if it's real powered flight you're after, well, given the reproduction rate of frogs, it's just not something that's feasible within even the career of one scientist. Just look at dogs. We've been breeding them for thousands of years, and while we've been able to get them to change in amazing ways, we just don't have enough time to turn them into separate species. Of course, not that we've been trying to make new species necessarily, but that gives you some idea of the amount of time required for such large changes. But I really don't see why you need to reproduce in the laboratory what can be verified already in nature. Frogs, or frog-like amphibians, did evolve to fly. They're called birds. Birds evolved from saurid reptiles, which evolved from diapsid reptiles, which evolved from early amniotic tetrapods, which split from amphibians. We don't really need to replicate this in the laboratory because we can use the fossil and molecular evidence to demonstrate that it's already happened. And Brian writes to say, in your molecular evidence for evolution number two, you said that no human and chimp gene differs by more than 3%. Please see the HR1 gene, which is one of several HARs that differ by as much as 20%. Well, this is a great email, and I really wish I had some sort of prize to hand out, but I don't. So let me just say kudos to you, Brian. Really, well done. Yes, it is true. What I said was, since the average primate generation is 20 years, the predicted difference between a chimpanzee gene and a human gene is less than 3%. And this is true for most other genes too, every gene that I've looked at, no less. In fact, I'd like to challenge anyone who'd like to disprove this evidence to find a gene that shows more than 3% difference. I'll even do the work for you, even though it's easy to do yourself. And HAR1 does indeed show a great deal of difference between humans and chimpanzees, in fact. I was wondering if anyone would mention this to me, since I'm pretty sure that the same article Brian read also came across my desk, although for a slightly different reason. One of the genes that interacts with HAR1 is relevant to my research. It was a recent publication in the August 18th issue of Nature, no less, in a very prestigious journal, So, in my defense, well, when I issued the challenge earlier this year, these genes had not yet been discovered, or at least they hadn't been published. 
Also, in my defense, the difference isn't quite so much as Brian says, but it is a really interesting discovery anyway and relevant to evolution, so I'll go into it a little bit here. As you know, human and chimpanzee genomes are incredibly similar, and in fact are more similar to each other than to any other organism, indicating that the two species split from a common ancestor. Well, it's no big surprise to anyone listening, I hope that despite the close similarities in our genes, humans and chimpanzees have a lot of differences. I've mentioned many here before, such as our conspicuous lack of body hair, but another obvious difference is our advanced intellectual capacity. It would seem to be a reasonable prediction of evolution that, of the genetic differences that exist between humans and chimpanzees, a significant number of them should be in some way related to our neurological development. Now, ten years ago, it would have been a very difficult task to find these differences. Sure, you could compare each gene one by one, but we have a lot of genes, so that would take a very, very long time. Now, however, the entire genome of both humans and chimpanzees has been published and is available electronically, so comparing differences is now just a matter of using the right algorithms and utilizing enough processing power. And this is exactly what was done by a collaborative effort out of UC Santa Cruz, UC Davis, and Cornell University in the United States, and the University of Brussels in Belgium, and the Université Claude Bernard in France. They went looking for regions of the human and chimpanzee genomes that showed specifically a significant difference, and they found some. 49 to be exact. The name given to these regions is Human Accelerated Regions, or HARs, which pretty much tells you that they're different right in the name. One region stood out as much more different than the rest, and since they were numbered as ranked by difference, it is in fact HAR1. And yes, within a 118 base pair region, there are 18 substitutions in the human sequence as compared to the chimpanzee sequence, which is actually a 15% difference, not 20%, but it's still a big difference compared to most other regions. However, HAR1 is not in itself a gene, it's a region in a gene. Well, two genes, actually, HAR1F and HAR1R which both utilize the HAR1 region as part of their transcript, but are transcribed in different directions. Now, I actually went ahead and compared the full-length HAR1F genes in humans and chimps, and when you compare the entire gene, the difference drops down to about 6.3%. But that's still double the difference as compared to most other genes. As it happens, most of the difference is confined to one section of the gene transcript, which gives some insight into why that large difference is meaningful. That gene does not appear to result in the synthesis of a protein product. As you probably remember from my molecular biology primer, a protein is the ultimate result of a gene, most of the time. Remember, DNA is transcribed into RNA, which is translated into protein, but If there's no protein being made, but the gene is being transcribed, then there has to be something being done by the RNA transcript. And the analysis of the RNA transcript shows that, in fact, there is a predicted structure formed from the RNA transcript itself. And most of the difference between the human and chimpanzee genes seem to be within this structure. 
it seems to be likely that this RNA structure is providing some kind of functional difference between humans and chimpanzees. And the scientists examined the expression pattern of this transcript to determine if they could find anything relevant about this gene by looking at where and when it is turned on. What they found was that this gene is activated during brain development and is actively expressed by specific neurons critical to cortical growth and organization. This strongly suggests that it has played an important role in the evolution of the human brain and is one of the major genetic distinctions between humans and chimpanzees. Not surprisingly, close to a quarter of the other HAR regions were found in the non-coding regions adjacent to genes important to neurodevelopment, suggesting that they play a role in the regulation of those genes and thus also contribute to our enhanced brains. So, although for most of our genes we differ only slightly from chimpanzees, the few places that do show a significant difference, not surprisingly, are places that contribute to the physiological characteristics which we already know are significantly different between our two species. This is a really cool utilization of genomics, molecular biology, and evolutionary biology, and I'm actually all too happy to have my challenge met. Okay, well that's all for this week. Next week, I'm planning on giving my own review of the Icons of Evolution DVD, which was recently given to me uh, by a friend of mine. I know there's other reviews out there, but uh, I'm going to give it my own take. So look forward to that next time. Take care.